1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read for you the passage that we're going to be discussing this morning, and then I'll pray. Paul says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share in your word together and be reminded of who you are, what you've done for us, and what you want for us. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would work in our hearts this morning. Um, Otherwise, we meet in vain. Uh, Lord, unless your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, this meeting will have been in vain. And so we pray that that would not be the case, but that you would give us ears to hear and an eagerness uh, to learn about you and to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Probably doesn't need a whole lot of uh, introduction if you've been around the church at all, or maybe, if you, maybe specifically if you haven't been around the church that much. Uh, if you have church leaders that are obviously falling into some type of like scandal or error or sin, that doesn't bode well for the church, right? I mean, that, that just makes sense. When, you, when there are um, uh, unqualified, we could say, leaders in the church, then the name of Jesus associated with that church suffers, uh, and the name of Jesus at large suffers. And this is not, by the way, a denominational issue. Okay, we're an independent church, it happened to be, but it's not like independent church leaders are uh, immune from having scandal. But I don't care if it's Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, uh, you know, I, any denomination. There, it's, it's, not, it's not just one denomination that struggles with this. And ultimately, you know, the biggest issue is that the name of Jesus and the mission of the church is hindered by that. And so this letter to Timothy uh, was written so that uh, the, the, the folk in the church ought to know how to behave so that that type of thing wouldn't happen. And so he addresses leaders here and in other parts of uh, this letter. But this morning we're specifically going to be looking at the specific qualifications and qualities that God's church leaders should have or should be. Okay? And now, I am well aware that I... <laughs> I'm self-aware, okay? I'm up here doing this, reading this going, man, I hope, you know, you know, it, you know chatting with the girls on the way over here. You're, you're all submissive, right? Like, you're doing what I asked you to do? You know, like, so I'm, I'm aware of what's happening here. But as a church, we want to submit ourselves to the Word of God. This is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God for the churches of God. And so this is the type of leadership that we're looking for in our church, that we want to cultivate in our church, if in fact it's going well, we want to support in our church, and then we want to see when we want multiplication to happen, we want to see other pastors uh, grow up in our church or sent out from our church, this 
passage is definitely going to be formative and shaping for us. And I think, you know, if I'm sitting where you're sitting, and that's the kind of church I want to be about. No one wants to be a, you know, part of a church where the leadership is, you know, potentially suspect and scandalous, right? I mean, nobody wants that. And so we want to allow this text to have its voice in our lives this morning. And so the way I basically structured this is uh, there's five points I want to get through. They all start with a P for somewhat of uh, a memory device for you. But the purpose of Christian leadership and the purpose is very intimately connect, of leadership is very intimately connected with the purpose of the church. I've probably read this verse almost every single time uh, that we've been in First Timothy because I want to make sure you get it. This is the theme verse of Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. I can imagine, I wish the Apostle Paul was coming to visit our church soon, but he's not. He's been delayed, folks. But he has written us this letter so that we can know how to behave in the household of God, the church, uh, the church of the living God, he says there, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so the church's role and responsibility in the world is to display the truth, specifically the truth about Jesus, which is what he says there. Jesus was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That's a, that's a little short encapsulation of this idea of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And so Trinity Church, Paul couldn't make it this morning. But he tells us, if I can't get there, here's what I want you to do. I want you guys to behave yourselves in such a way that the good news of Jesus is displayed to the world. Make sense? That's, that's what the church should be about. And if that's what the purpose and mission of the church is, then what is the purpose and mission of the leadership of the church? It's, it's, a, it's to that end. The, the leader of the church, the leaders of the church ought to put on display in their own personal, family, and communal lives the good news about Jesus Christ. You should be able to look at your church leaders and say, there is a living example of the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. So, that's the purpose of church leadership. It's intimately connected with the purpose of the church itself. First point, done. Mowing them down been out for a couple weeks. The priority of church leadership. Look with me. In verse 1, he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay? A noble task. And because it's a noble task, look at verse 2, says, therefore. You guys have heard me say this before. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should see what it's Therefore, because the task is noble, therefore, leaders should be such a way. But before we get into the particulars of what the leaders should be like, I just wanted to pause for a moment on that idea that the, that the office of the overseer is a noble one. Okay? Carolyn, I'm going to need that water. Right by your foot there, thanks. The office of the overseer is noble. The word overseer, um, has, it combines two ideas that we're going to see uh, as we go a little bit further down in here. It combines, it combines the idea of leadership and authority and also taking care of. It's someone who is in authority who takes care of something. 
uh, a great connection, and this word is the word is episkopos. It was often used in common Greco-Roman life for a steward. If there was a, a wealthy owner who was away from one of his homes, the steward was there, and the steward acted on the authority of the landowner. And it was the steward's job to take care of. So he had the authority of the landowner, but it was also his job to make sure that, uh, that, the, that the, the house and the household was kept in good order. That is a really good analogy of God's household managers. This church was, does not belong to the leaders of, this, of, of Trinity, the three elders that we have at our church. That's not who owns this church. One who owns the church, Jesus owns it because he purchased it with his own blood. Okay? The elders are put into place as stewards. We have a derived authority under King Jesus, and so we do have his authority, but we are to do it in such a way that we are to care for this church as the very precious purchase of Jesus bought with his own blood. So this is the overseer, and because that, te- you, know, you know, even as I just explained that, you can see, okay, well, there's, there's nobility in that. There's dignity in that. Sometimes, you know, we live in a very casual uh, culture many times. We live in a culture where uh, authority is often, and I get it, rightly so, uh, questioned. People are cynical, skeptical of leadership. They're looking to demean it. And I just think it's worth saying, because the Bible said it here, that the office and the task of being a pastor, of being an overseer, is one that ought to be held in honor. And again, I know I'm saying that, but it's what it says. Someone else want to come up and preach it? (laughs) You can't. No, good. It's noble. And so we ought to have a category in our mind and thinking that uh, we want to hold and esteem the leaders that God's given to this church, if they meet the qualifications, obviously, in honor. It's a noble, it's it's, it's honorable. Now, I call it the priority. That's, that's part of what I mean by priority. There's honor that's associated with the, the office of overseer or pastor. I use those interchangeably. I think I won't take the time, but if you have questions about that, I think I can demonstrate to you from the New Testament that overseer, elder, and pastor are interchangeable titles for the same role in the New Testament. Another thing that I mean by the priority, though, of Christian leadership is... Not just that it, that it is something that's worthy of honor, but also there's a lot at stake in it. So flip back to chapter 1. He says in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, which is a charge to make sure that sound doctrine is being taught and that the right leaders are in place. That's a charge that Paul has given to Timothy for these churches in accordance with the prophecies made about you that you wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So there are church leaders named Hymenaeus and Alexander who have swerved from the truth and from the principles that he's about to lay out in chapter 3, and they are affecting the church. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, the same thing is happening. Verse Chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2.16, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, 
and among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened, and these are upsetting the faith of some. When you get the wrong leaders, unqualified or disqualified leaders, in God's church, then you are going to see hurtful and damaging ramifications from that. People are going to be led away from Jesus. They're coming to the church so that they're thinking that they're going to be brought near to Jesus, but then they encounter wolves in sheep's or shepherds' clothing, and their faith is shipwrecked. Now, the good news in that scenario is that even the Lord knows them that are His. He can rescue from the shipwreck, but that's not what we're going for, folks. So, when we talk about the priority of Christian leadership, yes, it's a noble thing, it's an honorable thing, but also what we mean by that priority, it's a very important thing. The, the advance of the mission of the church to display to the world this good news about Jesus is significantly affected by all of us. The emphasis this morning is it's definitely affected by leadership that would be otherwise disqualified. Does that make sense? So it's important. And I, you know, maybe that's like the sim- that's not very profound. Church leadership is significantly important. Bad leaders lead to people's faith being undermined, the testimony of Jesus in the community being undermined, some of which we don't really recover from. I'll be honest with you, in America right now, the reputation of the church from the outside world, you know, I can remember a time when folk used to, to, I'll switch the metaphor here, the analogy, just a little bit, when it was like, oh, I want to look for a Christian business owner because I know I can trust them. That is not the case anymore. It's like, well... If, if they're a Christian business owner, that doesn't do anything for me. Used to be that you know a pastor was held in honor, even in the community, that, that people would say, "Oh, there's a pastor, there's a man of integrity. We know we can. We may not like him. We may think he's boring. <laughs> he's square, whatever. But he's a man of integrity. That is just not the case. People don't walk in our doors assuming we're people of integrity." And that has hurt our witness far more than we realize. And a lot of that is bound up with the fact that leaders have been fumbling the ball consistently over and over, either personally, communally, family, whatever. And so it's a big deal. Maybe I feel it a little bit more. So the priority of Christian leadership has to do with the nobility of the task and also the significance of the task and the impact and the ramification it has on the witness of the church. It is a noble task. Now, let's get into the particulars of it then. There's 15 of them. There's really one overarching one with 14 other ones that fill it out. Okay, look with me. Chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, because of the nobility of the task and because of the ramifications of the task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Okay? That is the overarching command. An elder, an overseer, or a pastor has to be above reproach. What does that mean, above reproach? It doesn't mean sinless, by the way. 
Okay? Doesn't mean they're perfect, that they've never sinned, that they don't need Jesus' death and resurrection, the good news of the gospel. Leaders are in need of the gospel every bit as much as everybody else. But leaders have, overseers I should say specifically, have in a sense attained a certain level of Christian maturity that they are above reproach, meaning that when charges are leveled against them, they can't stand. You know, you can pick one, pick the first one there. Uh, one woman man. He, he's been unfaithful to his wife. Well, no, he hasn't. Okay? Uh, one of them on here is um, it's on the next list there. It's interesting. A lot of commentators use that word bully. <laughs> I'm like, are they in the public school system? <laughs> no more bullies? He's a bully. Well, no, he's not. Or if confronted with one of those issues, 1 Timothy 4 talks about the progress of growth. There's a humility, there's a repentance, there's a transformation that can happen and even in the life of the minister. And so this idea about, of, of being above, above reproach means that there is a certain level of attainment of Christian character. It's there. Okay? And this is where I talk about the pastoral sin spectrum. Some of you are familiar with this. I've shared this with you. This is one of my favorite little conversations that I usually have in private and now I'm making it public. Here's the pastoral sin spectrum. Are you ready? On the one end of the spectrum, you want your pastor to sin. What? So that you can identify with him. Oh, I'm proud. He's proud. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, he, you know, he struggles with this. Oh, I've struggled with that too, you know. So you want your pastor to sin. But you don't want him to sin too much. Sins too much, and then he's like disqualified. He can't be your pastor. And so there's a zone that pastors live in, that pastors must live in. We must acknowledge that we are every bit as sinful and in need of grace as every other person. And yet at the same time, qualifications are made that if you don't meet them, you should not be a pastor. That almost sounds like legalism, doesn't it? And legalism can crush pastors and their families. We'll talk about that later. But for now, we have to acknowledge this idea about being above reproach is that there is an attainment level of Christian maturity that fits these qualifications. Okay, so... Above reproach. The first area he talks about is the area of marriage. One, a one-woman man. What does it say? The other uh, husband of one wife, which can be interpreted a lot of different ways. And let me just kind of cut right to the chase with this. These issues are about what a man is. The Greek says it is necessary that he be. These are, it's not necessarily just actions that the man does it's his essence. It's who he is. It's necessary that he be this way 
And so when it comes to being a one-woman man, people say, well, what if I was divorced in the past? Can I become a pastor? The issue is, is right now and for, you know, and this, there calls for some wisdom in this, but for a, a quantifiable time, it is obvious to everybody in the community that this man is devoted to this woman and there's nobody else in his life. He is a one-woman man. And we can talk about, you know, you know, what happened in the past or what happens if he was before he was saved and, you know, all those other th- kind of things can come into play. But what Paul is saying here is that it, it's got sexual overtones to it, that this man is a man of sexual fidelity. And if, in fact, he is married, then it is obvious that he has only one woman in his life. Does that make sense? It's clear. Okay? This man's marital status and uh, sexual... Um, propensities are clear for one woman. So, you know, it's interesting. Some of the big ones that cause scandals are sex, money, and power, right? All, all of them are going to be addressed in here. Okay? Is he a bully? That's the power issue. Is he love money? That's in there. Okay? Sex, money, and power. All of those cannot be things that are overcoming a man who aspires to be the noble office of a bishop, of an overseer. So he's the husband of one wife. He's sober-minded. Sober-minded, I think, the best way to look at that is he is tempered and balanced in his thinking. He's not prone to extremes. I think the, the, the Old Testament category of wisdom is what's kind of in mind here. He has a balanced approach to things. He sees things clearly. Okay? He's not swayed easily. He's not easily duped. He's sober-minded. He's not chasing fads. And fashions. He's self-controlled. Again, money, sex, and power. Okay, there is a there is a resistance to temptation. There's a discipline about his life. This actually is one of the fruit of the spirit. Okay, it's uh, and this would be in many areas of his life. Self-controlled in you know what happens with his finances, or self-controlled in what he uses with his words, or self-controlled in just many different arenas. You look at the person, and is there a self-control? Respectable. That one doesn't need a whole lot of comment. Like, dignified, respectable. Someone that you can look to and say, yeah, I, I value, I honor that person. He's a lover of strangers. That's the word hospitable. Okay, you guys, raise your hand if you've heard the word xenophobia in the news. Okay, yeah. immigration and all that other kind of stuff that's happening in our country. Xenophobia is fear of the other. The word xenos is the Greek word for other. Phobia is fear. Xenophobia, fear of the other. You're different than me, I'm afraid of you. One of the qualifications of the pastor, it's phileo xenos. He loves the others. You're different than me, I probably automatically love you. The idea of welcoming in people who are different and distinct from him is a characteristic that is essential for the Christian minister. And I could throw this in anywhere, but this is as good a time as any. If it's not like these, this list of virtues for the pastor, you should sit back and, <coughs> if you're not a pastor, be like, well, that's for him. I don't need to worry about it. No, these should be something that. All people in the church, all Christians, should aspire to. We all ought to be like, oh, you're different than me? Let me move towards you. As opposed to, you're different than me? 
that. So, he needs to be a lover of stranger. He needs to be hospitable. He needs to be able to teach. This is one of two kind of um, resume builders on this list. So far, what we've seen is grace and character. What kind of character is this man, not what can he do? Who is he versus what he can do? However, with the able to teach one, that falls more on the what he is able to do. Is he able to teach? And one of the reasons why this is in the list is because one of the primary responsibilities of the pastor, the overseer, is to exercise Christ's authority through teaching, through authoritative teaching. So he must be able to teach. A lot of people say that's the only, and I, before this week studying this and looking very carefully at it, I used to say that was the only thing he must be able to do on the, like, gifting side. But there's another one that snuck its way in there that I think is really important. We'll get to it in a second. And he's not a heavy drinker. So the, the text here does not call for teetotaling, but it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be like, oh yeah, pastor likes to drink. That's just, that's not like one of your first thoughts. Uh, you ought to connect him with that. Okay? Again, Jesus turned the water into wine, and that was not Welch's grape juice. Okay? <laughs> just so you're aware. Okay? But there's many ills. Some very close to home in my own family and had multiple conversations and things. You, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that sin and weakness accompanied with alcohol is a recipe for undermining the mission of the church. And so the leader ought to be self-controlled and ought not to be known and characterized by that. And again, that, that, that leaves some gray area. What does it mean to be known and characterized by that? There's some room for differing of opinion there. But nevertheless, the qualification stands. He ought not to be a bully. It's very easy to be a bully as a pastor, I'll tell you that. People think you speak for God, and you happen to know a lot about the Bible, and you can use the Bible as a weapon, and then people feel like, oh, he, he said this verse in the Bible, and now I've got to do what he said, and you can very easily be a bully under the guise of a pastor. Okay? You know, I praise God for my wife because I have that tendency in me to be a bully and to use the Scripture that way. And my wife just happened to be strong enough, smart enough, and wise enough to be like, well, the Bible also says other stuff. <laughs> and there's been significant pushback and learning and humility in my life based on what my wife has uh, been able to speak into my life. And I, again, I, don't, I want to say that carefully. I don't, I don't mean that in a way that she was you know, rude or aggressive or, or anything back. She just was able to gracefully stand there and say, well, no, that's not the only thing the Bible says, and you need to reconsider. So I want to make sure I cast that in the, in the proper light for her. Instead of being a bully, he ought to be gentle and not quarrelsome. You know, you could, especially in this day and age of social media, you could literally be picking a fight as a leader any day of the week and twice on Sunday. This issue, that issue, this issue, that issue. Well, this person said this, and I heard them say this. Did you hear this about that church member? Hear I mean, that kind of stuff comes at me, just so you're aware, regularly. And if I wanted to press and poke, and I could be kept in controversy. 
The pastor's job is actually to be squelching all the controversy. Put this fire out, put that fire out. No, it's really okay. They didn't really mean that. No, don't you love them in Jesus' name? Okay, good. You know, you're not quarrelsome. You're trying to promote peace everywhere. It's very, there is an analogy to if you have more than one child in here, and when you're, if the children are fighting, the parent, you know, it's not like you try to jump on one of your kids' side. If you do that as parenting, a little parenting application, it's bad parenting. You don't choose sides with your children. And when they're fighting, you're trying to promote righteousness between both of them and harmony with them all, right? And that's what leadership in the Christian church ought to be doing. We're trying to promote righteousness in everybody and harmony amongst us all not quarrels and fights and arguments which lead to ungodliness. And outsiders come in and be like, what? I don't want to be with these folk. They're quarreling. The leadership is splintered. The whole mission is undermined. So it's very important that the leadership of the church not be quarrelsome, not be bullies, but be gentle and peacemakers and peacekeepers. It's, you know, all of these are ways as we're looking for new leaders and new elders, pastors who come up from among us. If folk are quarrelsome and controversies follows them like that, what's that peanut character with the dirt behind him all the time? Pigpen. Controversy follows them like that guy. That's not a pathway to Christian leadership. Not a lover of money. That's actually one of the main motivating factors in Timothy, the false teachers that are there that are wreaking havoc on the church, chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6. For the sake of time, I won't read all those passages. But specifically in chapter 6, he indicts them that they are becoming leaders for financial gain. And so... The, the pastor or the leader ought not to be a lover of silver, is exactly how the Greek reads. They ought not to love money. And then they ought to lead their household well. And now there's three scenarios that he brings up here. Leading your household, not a new convert, and a good witness to the outsiders. And just to finish up with these particulars. He ought to lead his household well. For if he can't lead his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? And remember I said the overseer word has this idea of leading an authority and taking care of, and that's where you see it right here. He's to lead his household. If he can't do that, how can he take care of the house of God? Authority and care is the responsibility of the overseer, and the proving ground for that, the training ground for that, so to speak, is his own household. Now when we think household... We think husband, wife, children, which is fine and good, but in the first century, the household would have included husband, wife, children, servants, would have been business dealings. That, that's, that's who would have owned a household back then. And so this is where I think the second quality gifting comes into play. An overseer has to be a leader slash manager to some degree because he would have been Basically, a household owner then, basically, if I, if I could take the liberty, say they would have been basically a small business owner. Farms, lands, uh, servants, wife, children is mentioned here, of course. So it doesn't mean in today's day and age you have to be a small business owner to become a pastor. I'm not saying that at all. 
but there has to be some level of gifting to be able to lead, manage, and oversee. Okay? Those are the two responsibilities of the overseers. They're to teach with authority, and they're to manage and lead with care. And so they have to be able to, you know, the amount of gifting in there varies from pastor to pastor and from church to church. So he must manage his household well, be a one-woman man, have his children into submission with all dignity and honor. He should not be a new convert so that he doesn't get lifted up with pride. So the backside of that qualification means he must be a humble man. So a humble man would acknowledge that he's a sinner in need of grace. So that, you know, he's not lifted up with pride and arrogant and a bully and he can't be corrected and he can't be approached and all that kind of mess. Servant of the Lord, the minister of Jesus ought to be humble so he's not, if he is lifted up with pride, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. There's two different views on that. Either way, it's not good. Either way, you end up near the devil. Okay? Either it's the same judgment that the devil got because he was lifted up or in pride and brought down, or it means that the devil is the accuser of his pride, and so he's caught in the devil's trap because the devil condemns his pride. Either way, pride leads to uh, the, uh, we'll see in a second, the snare, or in this case, the condemnation of the devil. And then the final one is that he must be a good witness. It says a good reputation. The word actually is witness. He must be a martus, a martyr, a good witness for the gospel to the outsiders so that he doesn't fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil for that either. So I will say at this point, there is satanic, satanically emphasized opposition to church leaders. Would you agree? I think you'd have to agree. <laughs> if you didn't, yes, I'm a bully right now. You have to agree now. It is a strategy of the enemy to target leaders, lift them up with pride, disgrace them, so that the whole name of Jesus and the church is undermined. You know, I definitely think we should be praying for our leaders. So those are the particulars. And you see in there, there's personal stuff, integrity stuff, there's family stuff, there's community-wide stuff. That is a high calling. I mean, I was thinking, in the Old Testament, he only gave 10 commands. <laughs> For Christian leaders to give 14 plus be, be above reproach, that's 15. That's 50% more. This is the, the... And also, there's others that are added in Titus chapter 1. This is the standard, so to speak. This is the level of Christian maturity that God requires for those who would lead and care for his church. It's a noble task. Because it's so noble, and because it's so strategic, these are the qualities that the leader must have. Make sense? Now, that begs a question, at least it begs a question for me. Where does the power for such Christian leadership come from? And here I hasten, old hymn word, I run to the cross. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. We believe a gospel 
This is very good. We believe a gospel that produces men like this. And women, but specifically in leadership for the church, men like this. That's the gospel that we believe. Amen? I don't think you're as excited about that as I am, but your lack of enthusiasm doesn't change me one bit. I'm really excited that the gospel of Jesus produces men like this. I wasn't qualified at one point. I was a brawler. I was a fighter. You can you know, sit down with me for any length of time, and I'll tell you stories of being a bully and a brawler. And God, through my mother's prayers, through circumstances, through the gospel, changed me. And I'm not a brawler anymore. Well, in that sense. Different kind of brawler. Look back in chapter 1. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, this is what he was. But I thank God because he showed me mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Jesus. The saying is full of acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I receive mercy for this reason, that in me Christ might display. That's the role of the church. That's the role of Christian leadership. That in me, Paul says, Christ might display His perfect patience as an example for those who are to believe on eternal life. It's okay for Christian leaders to have a past. Because Jesus came to save people who have a past and restore them, and not just restore them, but bring them to a level of maturity and character where they are fit to manage God's house. Amen? So I'm just like, man, that's good news for all of us. No matter what your past has been, Jesus came to save sinners, and He didn't just come to forgive, He came to transform and renew as well, and He's doing it, God willing, in your leaders, and He's doing it in you. That's the only reason any of us would be qualified to serve in Him, whether as a pastor or any capacity in the body of Christ. So, there are a certain set, 15 to be exact, of particulars that set a very high bar for this noble task. But the good news for Trinity Church and the good news for Trinity Church's leaders is that Jesus came to save sinners and to transform them into his likeness so that through them and through the church we might display the perfect patience of Jesus Christ. And when people see changed lives and when people see and encounter and taste Uh, good, authoritative, compassionate leadership, they get a little bit of the taste of the kingdom of God. And that's what our job is to do, is to display and to give people a foretaste of what it's like to live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Praise God for the good news of the gospel. Lastly, just spend a few minutes on some of the pitfalls of Christian leadership. One of the pitfalls of Christian leadership, I I briefly mentioned it, was that churches tend to focus on 
what the man is able to do. I would use categories of giftedness versus grace. Grace refers to the transformation I just said of the person's character. Gifts refer to what they can do. Charismatic teacher, amazing leader, terrific administrator, amazing people, like all that kind of stuff, the gifts of the Spirit. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I don't have love, it profits nothing. And so one of the pitfalls that churches, you know, they literally fall into is that they get enamored with a gift set and it blinds them to potential character flaws in the man. Is he a great leader? Maybe. Is he a bully? Ha! <laughs> Love it. It's the best. First Timothy 5, later on, talks about how you ordain leaders, and it says don't do it hastily. But let's be really practical and really honest. You know, we're... Uh, mentioned last week, Chris Lindsay's ordination is coming up April 25th and 26th. It's been three years of evaluation. We feel as a leadership team that's enough time to find out what's he like. What's he like with Bree? What's he like with the kids? What's he like in his gospel community? Is he faithful here? Is he faithful there? Is he humble? Like, though, like that's what that's what we've been looking at. That's what we've been watching. We can see his gifts, but do we know his, we do know the grace of God in his life? I mean, that's, that's like right here, close to home. Churches can fall into that very easily, and we need to be careful not to fall into the, you know, the, the scriptures here emphasize of the 15 things mentioned, two of them have to do with gifting, 13 of them have to do with grace. Where do you think the emphasis falls? And it says it is necessary for him to be a certain way, not to be able to do certain things. And so at this church, we want to have, always have an emphasis on our leaders are going to be people of character, transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, to be able to display Jesus Christ in their lives and in their character. And to whatever degree God gifts them, praise God from all blessings flow. Some 30, some 60, some 100. That we don't control. Another pitfall that you can fall into, besides the gift-grace problem, is the idealization pitfall. Meaning, because the office is noble and because they, the, the pastor meets the qualifications, the pastor gets held up on a pedestal. And people, you know, hold him up as if he's not their brother, as if he's something different, like he doesn't need the cross. And then even worse than that is that once the pastor gets held up on that pedestal, then he starts to believe, you know, he starts to believe the hype, which is the, that's like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And so you, you get, and that's a crash and burn situation. That's just a ticking bomb. It's just a matter of time. It's like something that's swollen. Pride is like this thing that swells up. The, the church idolizes, idealizes him. He starts to believe the hype, and that bubble is going to burst. It's just a matter of when. Not if, but when. And then people's lives are going to be hurt, and the witness is going to be compromised, and the mission undermined, all of that. And so we must, you know, remember, as Paul was very careful to articulate in chapter 1, that he was the chief of sinners, even though he was the first of apostles. 
Okay? Every Christian leader stands in need of the cross like every single other person. And so the gospel pushes back against the, uh, this idea of, of idolizing the leaders. On the flip side, you know, a drunk man can fall off a horse two ways. And this goes back to kind of when I was implying with the, the office is noble. There can be a despising, a jealousy, uh, um, sometimes shows up as flattery, ironically, where other people are, gra- they want that and they don't have it. And it, it can like peck away at the leadership. Comment here, comment there, undermine here, gossip here, slander there. And the, the folks in the church are not submissive to the God-given authority and care that he has seemed fit for that congregation, and they are biting away at it. So you see the two opposite ends of the spectrum there? That can be a really dangerous pitfall, and it can really hurt the church. Good, fit, I would say, men. You know, I haven't lived a whole long, I've been 13 years as a pastor here, but I've seen that happen. I've seen both of those things happen. Lifted up with pride, and it blows up. And I've also seen good, fit men get really discouraged and say, I want to quit because there's constant nitpicking, condemnation. Along with that, one of the pitfalls in this area is churches, you know, it says they have to manage their own household well. And people put on the mantle of judge and jury of the pastor's family. (laughs) So, I want to say two things about that. First of all, I want to thank God that by and large in this church, that has not been my experience. Don't you clap. I'm clapping for you. That's not been my experience. Okay? Second of all, that conversation needs to be had with such tact and clarity that if, that if something like that were to arise, you need to be very careful how you handle that. Is that is, am, am I being clear? If you want to come talk to me about my wife, you can do that. The door is open. But you need to be very careful on how you do that, right? When come talk to me about my kid, like, we just need to be careful. We don't want to be judgmental. It is a qualification. It is an issue. We can't avoid it. But, like, literally, folks, books are written by pastor's kids who, like, hate the church. Because of how folks in the church decided it was their job to judge them. It doesn't go great. Okay. So that's a pitfall. Here, my experience has been wonderful. So I'm really, it's, it, that makes that conversation easier. <laughs> Honestly, so much easier. You can ask my kids if they agree with me. <laughs> no, don't, don't you dare ask them right now. <laughs> so I'm thankful to God. But we need to be careful. That's another one of these pitfalls. There, there actually is a method for how that gets handled. If you turn over to 1 Timothy 5, 
in verse 19, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, you have an issue with one of these qualifications and one of your leaders? It needs to be a clear charge that can be defined and corroborated by two or three witnesses. Otherwise, that charge will not even be admitted to the church. And just because the charge is admitted in our day and age, an indictment is as good as a conviction. That is not how it ought to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Just because a leader is charged does not mean they're indicted. Okay, and then there's obviously church discipline and conversations. That's why we have a church constitution to work some of those things out. So the pitfalls are, that we talked about this morning, can be idolizing your pastor, uh, you know, demeaning the pastors or the pastoral team, be overly harsh and critical of the pastor and his family, can be more focused on gifts than we do on grace. So there's many pitfalls that the church can fall into, and the remedy to each and every single one of them is if we would remember the purpose and the mission of the church is that we are all sinners saved by grace, and we let the gospel steer us through them all. I mean, you think about that. The gift versus grace. Did Jesus die just to give you spiritual gifts or to change your character? Which one? Your character. Primarily your character. That's more important than the gifts that you have. Okay? When we think about confronting others, even those who are in leadership and potentially their family, we ought to do it in a spirit of humility and, and meekness, Galatians 6 says, considering our own selves, remembering the gospel, that every confrontation we ever have, we have it at the foot of the cross. I mean, if you would remember that as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, that when you make this indictment, you're doing it while Jesus' blood is dripping for you right behind you. That'll change your tone. <laughs> I struggle with tone. You see how the God, again, the gospel of Jesus helps us navigate all of the pitfalls. And so truly, it needs to be emphasized that we need to be a church that is on mission. And to be a church that's on mission, we need leaders who are emulating that mission. And so may God help us to you know, sustain that type of leadership by God's grace. I'm thankful. I believe that this church has that type of leadership, and I'm grateful for that, and to pray that God would raise up more laborers, more men and, uh, who would be able to lead God's church and be sent out to go plant other churches and help lead in other places. So I've asked um, a couple folks to come pray uh, for us this morning to pray for our church leadership and that God would raise them up. So Dan Farron and uh, Brad Lapiska, if you guys would come and pray for our church.